Hello and welcome to Econoday Unplugged on Wednesday, the 6th of May 2020. Mark Pender is stateside, Brian Jackson's in Sydney, and I'm Jeremy Hawkins here in London. Financial markets remain predictably volatile as the rising onslaught of really bad economic data is parried by hopes that the worst of the COVID-19 crisis may be behind us. In recent days, sentiment has not been helped by an escalation in the coronavirus blame game between the US and China, which has prompted fresh concerns about the longer term prospects for global trade. And a new spat between North and South Korea at the weekend was something that investors could certainly have done without. In terms of the economic data, last week gave us an early taste of the virus effects on overall economic performance by a sizable declines in first quarter GDP out of the US and in particular the Eurozone. But as bad as they were, the second quarter will of course be much, much worse as lockdowns more fully constrict both demand and supply. So investors are still looking to China for some light at the end of the tunnel, which inevitably puts the spotlight on Brian. So, Mr. Jackson, the virus numbers would appear to be doing, well, I guess what they're supposed to be doing. But how's the economy holding up? Well, I think across the region, what we're seeing is that um, the numbers are very weak, but broadly in line with what you would expect to see in these circumstances. Uh, you know, as we know, many economies in the Asia-Pacific region rely very heavily on global demand to drive their economic growth rather than domestic demand. And, you know, this has clearly weakened significantly. And in addition, what we've seen is that governments across uh, the region have to varying degrees put in place um, you know, social restrictions, business restrictions um, to try and curb the spread of the disease. So when you add those two things together, it's not uh, surprising that you're going to see just huge swathes of the Asian economy shut down. And mm. so now we're seeing that in the numbers. Um, you know, we're, we're right. We're nearly at the end of this month's cycle of PMI survey numbers, and they are definitely grim and in some cases quite remarkably so. In terms of China, we've had the first quarter GDP numbers. Are there any kind of expectations for what the second quarter might look like yet? No, not really. I mean, that's you know still quite a, a bit down the track. But um, you know, just looking at the uh, you know what we do have for the current quarter so far, you know, it's mainly the the uh, the PMI numbers, um, and they are just showing you know some signs of stabilisation, but at a very weak level. Um, mm -hmm. You know. Uh, and, and again, that's consistent with, you know, sort of the anecdotal reports that, you know, the factories are, are starting, you know, are, are back in swing, but, you know, not really, um, you know, getting anywhere near back to where they were before the crisis struck. And and now I, I think what we are seeing more clearly is that, you know, there's sort of like a rolling impact of this uh, crisis sort of, you know, going across the rest of the region now. And so, uh, you know, the big hit to China happened very quickly, and now we're seeing the hit uh, in, in other parts of, of Asia. Hong Kong, then, just sort of, you know, segueing off from what you're talking about, the China spill, spillover effect there. And clearly, Hong Kong's had a lot of problems for a lot of time now, recently we have domestic violence and your disputes and all this sort of thing. Now being hit with a virus, we had a big decline in first quarter GDP. Was it over 5%, remember rightly, there? Um, is, yep. Are we going to a stage now whereby th this protracted decline in Hong Kong economic activity is having or might well have an impact on sort of longer-term investor behaviour there? It, it is a risk, and, uh, and you know, as you as you refer, referred to earlier, you know, just you know, tensions between the U.S. and China, and, and the impact that it has on global trade is going to very much uh, impact uh, Hong Kong's position. Uh, and obviously, if um, you know the financial sector there uh, takes a hit, then that will be really bad as well. So, 
what Hong Kong, though, does have going for it at the moment is that it's actually weathering the, the virus reasonably well. Um, they went pretty hard early in terms of, um, you know, uh, responding to the disease. Uh, and obviously, they've got uh, experience there of dealing with SARS previously. And so I, I think, mm-hmm. you know, the, the public there were, were on board pretty quickly. And, you know, it's been quite successful in, in managing the actual disease. And then hopefully that will allow them to uh, perhaps ease some of the restrictions and get business working uh bit more quickly than in other parts of the world so that's something that might help them going forward but yeah there's still definitely a lot of challenges with hong kong yeah you just seen yesterday with their uh pmi you know again very weak and showing a a very strong contraction in april and so you know it's going to be a long process to you know just get back to to level terms okay now Uh, okay yeah sorry mark yeah hi uh this is mark um we have Chinese merchandise trade coming up from, uh, is, it, is it going to be um, uh, Thursday your time? Yeah, later on, yeah, just in a few hours' time, yep. And uh, I'm just, uh, w- 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 I don't see any uh, consensus for that. Uh, is that uh, something that the forecasters uh, do, or is uh, I can see contraction, it was moving in for a long uh, period in contraction, Um is there steeper contraction? And this is for April, right? So this is a uh, pretty updated um, uh, set of figures. How uh, how how should we read those figures? Are they already going to be out of date because of the the virus's effect in Europe and in um, in Europe in North America? Well, possibly, but um, you know, we're going to see. Uh, I think right across the region, obviously, the impact of of weaker global demand, and and that just really, I think, puts the challenge on. Um, some of these Asian economies to try and find um, some more reliable sources of growth in the near time. So it, it, it might just have to you know, continue and rely on uh, some fiscal stimulus to try and uh, you know, kickstart these economies, given that they can't rely on external demand uh, in, in the circumstances. And that's something that um, uh, is not doesn't come naturally to them all, all the time. They, you know, there is this definite definite reliance on on external demand to drive growth. Um, one, one probably main exception to that is, is India, where their uh, economy is less exposed to global trade, but um, you know they're still feeling the impact just from the disease because of what what they've done with their national lockdown. And um, you know we had a very striking number for the Indian services PMI yesterday. Uh, fell to let me just find it. Fell to yeah, I think it's like five. five. Point, I'm looking it up. Yeah, now. five point four. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think most of our listeners. Um, are familiar with PMI surveys and uh, you know how the index works for those surveys. You know, 50 is the is the no change level. We nearly we we nearly always operate in that sort of uh, range between 45 and and 55. You know, 45 is is a pretty weak number generally, but um, you know it's got down to 5.4, which is I don't remember ever seeing a, a PMI number that low. Oh, that means just about everybody who they sampling are saying that business is uh, down. Yeah. Yeah. One exception to the rule I noticed, it appears, going back to a world, your, your home part of the world, um, Brian, Australia. We saw nothing out of the RBA, and they seemed what little I saw about it. They weren't too sort of, you know, downbeat about the outlook. And then you had this huge surge in March retail sales. Was that just some form of panic buying, as we've seen of release essential items, certainly out of Europe anyway? Or is it just the fact that, you know, consumption in Australia is holding up surprisingly well? Well, you know, I, I think that's a really good uh, example to just 
highlight just how important it is to look behind the headline numbers uh, now and really consider what's going on um, with these data. You know, the, the economic impact of the crisis is showing up in the data, but that really means understanding how the data works is important to understanding how this crisis plays out. So sometimes you're going to see some numbers that look scary or a bit confusing or, you know, you need to look a bit deeper behind, uh, you know, the headline number to really work out what's going on. So that's that's definitely the case here. It was a, 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 a you know a pretty sharp increase in the headline number, uh, but that was yeah it was driven by by food uh, mainly. So we've seen um, in in response to the to the pandemic, Australian households hitting the supermarkets pretty hard, stocking up the pantry, stocking up the fridge, uh, and uh, that's dr- drove that headline number. If you look at some of the other components, though, very sharp declines. So uh, you know. There's only so many, uh, uh, you know, so many items that you can put in the pantry. Uh, so I think going forward, you will see uh, that number come off a bit, and then uh, perhaps some of the other components might start to bounce back a bit. But it's just going to really highlight the importance of analysing the numbers pretty carefully mm. to see what's going on. Are you guys seeing any shortages uh, here in the U.S.? We're getting shortages of in food. Um, Wendy's, which is a, I don't know if you guys have Wendy's, but it's uh, very popular, um, uh, and they go into the commodity markets all at once, uh, buying uh, yeah. uh, beef, and they're out of the you know they've been out of the markets, and they're actually uh, uh, scratching things off their menu, which has a you know it's, it's something you've, I've never seen before. Are you guys seeing anything that or, or uh, it it's, hasn't been too bad in terms of uh, um, I think the food supply chain is still working pretty well here. Um, Obviously, there's been shortages of particular products uh, at supermarkets at times, but again, in, in the last few weeks, that's started to improve as well. Um, you know, again, in, in Australia, Australia, I think the public health uh, measures have had a pretty good impact, um, and they are now starting to talk about easing some of those restrictions uh, here. But, um, you know, you, you mentioned the RBA uh, earlier, and... You know, they are still predicting a very sharp contraction in the numbers uh, for the first half of the year, whether it's employment uh, output, uh, you know, just generally across the board, we're going to see some pretty weak numbers. But they're, uh, you know, they are hopeful, or perhaps is probably the best word, not, not um, they're definitely not confident, but they're hopeful that we will see a recovery both in the global economy and the domestic economy in the second half of the year. Assuming, of course, that um, you know uh, public health authorities do get on top of the of the of the disease. Yeah. Okay. Um, before we move across to Mark, just a quick one and say, in terms of central bank stuff, I mentioned the RBA. Just wanted to ask you about the RBNZ, the uh, the Kiwi Central Bank. A couple of yeah. weeks ago, um, there were some reports about the um, the RBNZ governor apparently discussing the possibility of monetizing the debt. Is that something which is you know genuinely being contemplated, or just a kind of you know, an airy fairy idea which some reporter got hold of? I think they would be reluctant to. Uh, to go down that path unless they really had to. Uh, again, New Zealand is uh, doing all right from a public health perspective and hopefully uh, you know, they'll also see a, a bit of a, a recovery in, in their economic numbers uh, towards the end of the year. But they haven't been hit too hard um, so far and so I, I think that, would, that sort of measure um, is it's, it's potentially on the table but I 
yeah, I wouldn't expect to see it mm-hmm. um, unless things really stay bad for, for an extended period. Yeah, certainly be interesting. I did go down that route. Okay, thanks for that, Brian. Right then, Mr. Pender. Well, I guess if anything's going to tell us what's happening to the US economy at the moment, it's going to be Friday's employment report. So come on then, just how grim is it going to be? Well, before we even get to see how grim that is, we have to uh, get through tomorrow's jobless claims. And um, Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, these peaked over nearly 7 million. It was uh, uh, the end of March and uh, they've been um, coming down. But now, you know, uh, Conaday's consensus is uh, 3 million. So the trend, if you just look at the line, it's a favorable line, but the, the magnitude of these weekly uh, totals is yeah. just how long, you know, yeah, it's frightening. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, the more these go, the deeper um, GDP will go. But ultimately, I guess your ultimate measure, historical measure of a country's uh, uh, troubles are, is the unemployment rate. And uh, we'll get that out on Friday. We'll get a first look at it, I guess. And uh, let's see what the uh, Econoday, the latest thing, uh, Econoday consensus on the unemployment rate. It was the mid-teens last I look at. I'm just calling it up now. Um, it was 16.4% is what we're expecting. And I, that, I think that that's going to have to be going up um, as we speak. Uh, actually significantly so because that's almost uh, the low double digits is where the unemployment rate already is for the uh, insured workers and the headline um, payroll change looks to be uh, 21.5 million uh, jobs lost which is no surprise because that's roughly what we've seen uh, low 20s uh, not quite mid 20s so far in 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 claims over the last uh, six weeks or so so um, it's really those initial weekly initial uh, claims are the ones that really signal um, the conditions here. And I just have a question for you guys: Would you see weekly uh, unemployment claims, uh, other data in other countries? Is this just a, a U.S. thing, or? Well, certainly within Europe, we don't really get official weekly weekly jobless numbers at all. So mm-hmm. the you know the early calls on the the monthly numbers out of the UK and out of Europe will typically be based on what we hear from you know the likes of the PMI surveys and and any other business surveys. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, here they're that's very. The same. That's the yeah, same it, the Pacific region. Well, well, this is a very valuable thing to do to have these weekly numbers, uh, and really, so the uh, the the Friday's employment report is really just going to be a shadow of the last uh, 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 you know um, period of uh, these weekly claims. And uh, the whole thing is what's interesting here now is average hourly earnings. Uh, our consensus here is still pretty uh, uh, routine: zero point three on the month and three point two on the year um, percent, but. Uh, um, the interesting thing is the outside range is very, very high, uh, as much as 7.9% for the year-on-year change and 5% for the monthly change. And this reflects uh, the, uh, the suspicions among some forecasters that the job concentrations have been uh, lost in lower-wage uh, work. And so when you remove them, the average goes up. But not all of them see that. We also have a, a minus 0.1% forecast, for instance, on the monthly change, looking at it in the other direction. But I guess that that's a little bit of a side note. I don't think it'll have any impact on, on policy uh, or, of course, it wouldn't have anything on inflation. But, you know, deflation is a big deal, I mean, right now, is how deflationary is this whole virus 
uh, uh, going to prove. Um, there are certainly some uh, isolated increases in food, for instance, but um, generally, uh, and especially with oil so low, fuel so low, uh, this is very frustrating because we, we've been through 10 years, a whole cycle of, uh, of stubbornly deflation, disinflationary uh, trends, and now this is going to move perhaps significantly um, underwater. So, uh, uh, Jeremy, okay, so what do you, uh, I'll uh, hit it back to you. What do you think a, a deflation would mean for the financial markets? Where, where, what would go up and what would go down? Well, if we get deflation, um, the central banks have got real problems on their hands. As you mentioned, um, I think a lot of central banks with inflation targets now have been you know, desperately trying to, to achieve those targets ever since the, uh, the global financial crisis. I suppose, you know, from, from my part of the world in Europe, if we look at the ECB, um, you talk about inflation, well, the flash numbers we had what for April, they showed headline inflation year on year down to where I'll be just 0.4%. Now, they've been struggling to get to this 2% mark now for the best part of what three four years or so if they were to see prices start going down then i think we're talking about you know, a fundamental overhaul of monetary policy i think it's got to the stage well in fact prior to the the onset of this covid19 crisis people may remember that the ecb announced that it would be undertaking a complete structural review of what it wants to do with um, ecb policy you know what it should be looking at how it should get there and everything else then we get the coronavirus crisis and all of a sudden well right you just start throwing the kitchen sink to try and get the economy moving again and to make sure we have a continued stable flow of liquidity through financial markets if we get if we you get prices starting to go down then i think it really is so i mentioned to um, ask brian about you know right do they start monetizing the debt well they're going to have to do something which will stop prices spiraling downwards and to do that you have to do something which will ultimately provide a big boost to you know to aggregate demand and that will require i suspect a, a further blowout in fiscal deficits because effectively we're talking about a uh, you know declining consumer demand so the whole in private sector demand has got to be more than filled by public sector demand which effectively means borrowing they've got to finance that borrowing they can't afford to finance it through raising interest rate to make bonds attractive so basically Basically, it's going to be down to central banks to effectively, we said, monetize the debt and actually just start, you know, funding direct spending by governments, wherever it may be. So well, I think, the, you know, it would be a the, huge move. That's the Reich Bank in the early 20s in the Weimar Republic. It um, is. And then, of course, the, I mean, in, in Asia, we've had, you know, the Bank of Japan just be in a complete, uh, uh, you know, lockdown trying to deal with its deflation for, for many, many years. And uh, it's, it's had a huge impact on on the monetary policy that they're able to do and, and just the effectiveness of it. Yeah, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm, there's got to be, I think that we've had these podcasts, you know, in, in, I don't know, going back a few years now, we've talked about, you know, one of the fundamental problems confronting policymakers, particularly central bankers, was that if they were to be hit by some kind of big crisis now, you know, and this is going back a few years, post the global financial downturn, you know, interest rates for a lot of countries had hardly crept above zero in the first place. So they got so little ammunition left, and that now really just being proven. Um, 
just look at my world. I'm saying with ECB last week, and I think they can be regarded amongst the major central banks as probably still lagging somewhat behind. When we think what the Fed's done with its balance sheet, um, it's going through the roof. Uh, the ECB, by comparison, is, is hardly doing anything. But what they did do last week, when, to be honest, they didn't do much, they didn't change interest rates, they didn't announce any change to their, uh, their asset purchase program. What they did do was to introduce some of these so-called additional long-term repo operations under which now they can effectively lend to the banks at minus 1%, so long as the banks, you know, lenders of ECB wants them to. So we're already effectively in a negative interest rate environment as far as uh, your ECB interest rates are concerned anyway. And again, well, if you're already negative, then what's the point of making it even more negative? How's that going to help to stimulate demand? Um so, yes, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a real big problem for central bankers at the moment. And personally speaking, I really do think if this situation continues, then, you know, what can you do to get growth going again? And it's, of course, doubly difficult this time because of the nature of the downturn in the economy. You know, throwing a lot of money at the economy doesn't necessarily mean that the coronavirus is going to end in a hurry. That's probably got nothing to do with it. So it's going to be, I suppose, bottom line, you asked me, going back to your original question, you know, what moves? Well, it just suggests I think things are going to remain very volatile for some considerable while yet. Good news. Uh, is, there, is there any good news? Anybody have any good news? Um, well, I was going to mention, just, just to summarise the European economy, that if you look at Spain, their new car registrations in April were down 97%. And that was also true of the United Kingdom as well, which, you now going back to Brian talking about, was it a seven a seven index on the Indian services yeah. PMI? Well, it is. Effectively, it means that part of the economy simply doesn't work anymore. Now, there, weren't any cars, there weren't any cars being sold. The sector just simply ground to a halt. And it's both on the demand and the supply side. Well, um, the, uh, the hope, I suppose. Production is shut down and, and buying is shut down. And the and hope so, has got to, yeah, it's got to be that consumers will start buying again as they yeah. start to, you know, loosen, loosen some of these restrictions. But it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's really, really problematic. I mentioned, let's, I mean, take about your, uh, so Mark, your first quarter US GDP, uh, yeah. quarter on quarter. Do you, do you remember the rate off the top of your head? Either annualized or quarter. Five, four point seven. That's a guess. I, I'd have to call it back up. It wasn't too bad. It was uh, just over five. Uh, it was lumped up. Just over five cent yeah. annualized. Yeah. Yeah, but okay, that was so, all because of March. It was just the two weeks. Yeah, in March yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But what I was going to say was, you take the the eurozone first quarter um, eurozone GDP. If you analyze the decline there, it was down about fifteen percent. So one five percent, and exactly the same as your side. That's with the lockdown only starting in the middle of March. So you know, effectively, once we get into you know, April and May and perhaps June, then that's when the lockdown's really taking effect. So the second quarter numbers on paper are going to look absolutely horrible. Um. Good news. Well, I haven't got any, but what I will say, just to <laughs> just to stir the pot a bit more, since I think it's, it's I think it's worth mentioning, um, is regards to some potential problems for ECB policy, uh, and this comes out the Germany Germans Constitutional Court, which as of yesterday said um, that the ECB's asset purchase program, so effectively their their QE, their you know their their, their, their bond buying program, um, their purchases aren't backed by European treaties. 
and it's come out and told the Bundesbank not to participate in this program and to sell its already what substantial holdings of, of, of paper if the ECB fails to satisfy its demands for what it calls an explanation as to how purchases are proportional. Now, it's given the ECB three months effectively to come out and explain why it's doing what it's doing with its asset purchase program. And if it's not happy with it, then under German law, it could actually inform the Bundesbank, right, you're no longer taking part in the ECB's bond buying program. And since the Bundesbank is the most important of the central banks, this would have huge implications as far as you know, the whole program itself is concerned. And also, you know, for those countries which are currently really dependent upon the ECB's buying, so the, you know, the peripheral um, EMU countries like Spain and in particular Italy, it could be absolute disaster. So, I mean, to be honest, I, mean, I can't believe this thing will actually happen. But were it to happen, it would be a huge blow to the whole Eurozone per se. And it's the kind of thing which ultimately could just lead the thing to fall apart. So, there's, you know, as well as all the coronavirus and the terrible economic news going on, there's some nasty politics taking place at the moment, which, you know, for the investor community, which really doesn't know what it's supposed to be doing, makes it just about as bad as it can get. So... Um, well, on that note. <laughs> Sorry, that's what you're saying. <laughs> um, right, what else can I, I just quickly mention, for finish off from the European side, um, Bank of England, if anyone's interested in it, probably not. Um, they come out tomorrow, I mentioned them more, not so much because they're expected to do anything because they, they did actually do quite a lot in terms of their policy changes um, in, in March time. But tomorrow they will be releasing their statement uh, five hours earlier. So that will be at seven o'clock in the morning, London time, as opposed to the usual midday. And that's because they want to try and uh, tie in their own report with a report from the Financial Policy Committee, which is looking at some of the financial implications of the coronavirus. So no immediate implications for you know what how the COVID is affecting the B of E per se, but it, it is at least for this particular month anyway, an earlier change. I'm saying nothing's actually expected out of the Bank of England tomorrow because they have done quite a lot. But it's got to be said, because these numbers are coming in as bad as they are, and I suspect that like most people, the central banks have been caught, caught by surprise at just how poor they are. There's got to be at least some chance that they could raise their quantitative easing ceiling. That currently stands at 645 billion sterling. And it's not, so it's certainly not impossible that they could raise that a little bit further. Um, right. Well, that's probably it from my side. Has anybody else got anything to say Wish on a bright note so that we can end this thing? Well, I mean, over in the Asia-Pacific region, there are some signs of, of improvement in, you know, in countries like Hong Kong, Australia, Good man. Go for New it. Zealand. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, we, we don't want to uh, uh, claim that we're out of the woods yet. And uh, obviously this thing is unpredictable. But, um, you know, policymakers here are, you know, have as a baseline scenario, you know, very weak first half of the year, but improvement uh, in the second half of the year. So we'll just uh, cross our fingers and hope. All right. And on a final, uh, Mark, have you finished anything else to, anything else you want to say? I, I, I'm out of, I'm out of bad news. So <laughs> in that case, you probably are done. Well, I guess on the, we do, if we do want to finish it on a bright note, I'm taking a punt here. Um, Brian, so you talked about all this, um, you know, all this precautionary buying, panic buying and stuff of groceries and everything else. Is your fridge full of tinnies now? Uh, there is enough to keep me 
There is enough to keep me under control. Yes. No That's problems. excellent. That's, I think, is what we can call a good bit of news to end on. So that is it for today, then. Um, apparently, this was our 201st podcast. So to anyone who's come anywhere close to listening to all of them, your stamina must surely be more than enough to beat this COVID-19 lock. And to everyone on behalf of Mark, Brian and myself, thanks as always for tuning in. We'll be back next week. So do join us then. And in the interim, remember to keep up to date with all the key data and events in O'Connor Day's global economic calendar. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.